Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Perhaps for the sake of continuity, I should read verses 5 through 13, since, as I've been saying, that comprises a unit. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, but the focus of the sermon is verses 12 and 13. Hear God's word. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, uh, Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of your word. And the realization that, uh, God, your words are to us life. They are like manna from heaven. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we confess to you, O God, that we need your word for life. We need it to live, to live forever. Lord Jesus, you have the words of life. To whom will we turn but you? We pray that you will instruct us now through your apostle, the apostle Paul, and even through me. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the subject of the mortification of sin. This is uh, quite clearly the, the teaching of these verses. Uh, that isn't the exact language that you, that you have in the New King James one of you can remind me later whether the ESV has it, but it says, put to death the deeds of the body. Well, uh, it, it was based on that that John Owen wrote a famous work, The Mortification of Sin. Uh, I have it in this edition. Many of you have this edition as well. And I have to say, uh, reading it again these last two weeks has been very beneficial to me. This is, well, it was the kind of thing uh, Christians used to speak about often. It was a favorite subject of the Puritans. This is one of the great works, The Mortification of Sin. It's something that we need to know about. And Paul here, you see, it's a fitting close to this this minor section, verses 5 through 13, because Paul has been describing these contrasting positions, the flesh and the spirit. And the Christian is not in the flesh, but he's in the spirit. That's what he says in verses 9 through 11, having described uh, the contrast in verses 5 through 8. The the Christian is uh, someone who is indwelt by the spirit, furthermore, Paul says. And yet he can say in the midst of those verses, that the spirit is alive because of righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. And, and so you see, he is presenting to us uh, uh, the dilemma that we face. And it is the dilemma of, uh, as I stated last time, quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a salvation which is as yet partial. We are saved in part, not in full. Yes, in the inner man saved, but in the outer man unsaved. The body is still yet unredeemed. We look forward to the resurrection of the body with certainty, with hope. 
But until that day should come, we are contending against it. You remember what Paul says in chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, inwardly, deliberately, outwardly not. We're still looking for it. We're still longing for it. We're looking for the redemption of our bodies, Paul says later on in chapter 8. What we have here, you might say, is the doctrine of sanctification, specifically with respect to the problem of sin. Now, that is not a complete statement of the doctrine of sanctification. There's a great deal more to be said, uh, but at least one half of our sanctification has to do with sin. Obviously, the other half has to do with obedience. But here we are told that part of the path of obedience is dealing actively with our sin. And this constitutes our sin, I mean, no small problem for the Christian. And it has been a major focus of the teaching ever since chapter 6 as well as chapter 7. And so it's very natural that Paul would go on here in light of the teaching uh, of the flesh and the spirit, describing the Christian as someone who is spiritual, who is indwelt by the spirit, to again revisit this problem. Again, the problem of sin, sin in the body. And the teaching here in verses 12 and 13 is what it has been, simply uh, that you must realize your position. The Christian must begin by realizing what is true of him. Therefore, Paul says, that's the first word. Realize what it means to be a Christian. Realize what is true of you already if you are in Christ. And if Christ is in you, it is an exhortation based on the prior teaching. Again, the body is dead because of sin. The spirit is alive because of righteousness. That's what he just said. Therefore, put to death the deeds of the body. That's the teaching. And so there's a negative and a positive. And we are to deal with the negative in terms of the positive. The negative aspect of the teaching tells us about the presence of sin in the body. But the positive tells us about the presence of life in the inner man. The presence of the Holy Spirit inwardly in the believer, in the body even, he says. And this is what makes dealing with sin possible and even necessary. It is what is true of you inwardly. And so Paul says that the Christian position must be seen like this. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Beginning in verse 12. The first thing he says is that we are debtors not to the flesh. The man who is a debtor to the flesh, Paul says, is someone who lives According to the flesh, but we already know based on what he said in verses five and eight and again in verses nine through eleven, that that is not the Christian position. The Christian is someone who is not living according to the flesh and therefore he's someone who's not a debtor to the flesh. Now, the positive counterpart is never stated. It's implied. He simply states it in negative, but he assumes the positive. And really, the force of the statement is only felt when you see this. You're not a debtor to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Why? Because you are a debtor to the spirit to live according to the spirit. And Paul pre pre presents the duty in terms of the contradiction it would entail for someone who is a debtor to the spirit to live according to the flesh. To live according to the flesh when debtors to the spirit would be to go back. It would be to turn our back on our position and our inheritance and our right. 
And in order to appreciate the force of the exhortation, exhortation here, we must appreciate the force of the word debtor. That's something new. Even though the idea here is the same as what it has been, the word here, debtor, is something that we have not seen before. It carries the notion of being under obligation. Someone who is a debtor to something is uh, under obligation to fulfill certain duties and responsibilities. Now, it is right to say of the unbeliever who lives according to the flesh that he's a debtor to the flesh. He's under obligation to the flesh. The flesh has made its claim on him. And apart from the life and the resources of the spirit, he's unable to break free. That's the unbeliever. But the believer ought to be looked at uh, in a different light and in a different way. He, he isn't under obligation to the flesh. No, Paul says, he's under obligation to the spirit. He's a debtor to the spirit. Thus, he ought to live according to the spirit. That's where his obligation lies. And if anyone is able to lay claim on his life, it's not the flesh, it's not sin, it's not the world, it's the spirit, it's God. Didn't we just sing that? A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy, I sing. Do you, do you realize the force of what those words entail? Paul is here defining the Christian position. And in doing so, he is defining what our attitude to sin is to be. The problem of sin in the believer. The spirit is alive. The body's dead because of sin. And yet he can say the Christian is someone who has no obligation to the flesh. It has no claim on him or his life. Sin is no longer the master as we saw in chapter 6. Though perhaps we need to be reminded. In fact, I think we need to be reminded of that every day. Every day we're tempted to sin. Every day we fall into sin. Don't we need to hear it? Don't we need to say it to ourselves? Sin is not the master. What is my position? I'm not a debtor to, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Or, or verse 9. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Isn't that the kind of thing you need to remind yourself of every day? Especially, as I say, as you're tempted to sin. And even as you fall into sin, what am I doing? I'm a debtor to the spirit. That's where my allegiance lies. That is who has a rightful claim on me as a believer. Not sin, but God. Now, Paul is not saying that it is not possible for the Christian to sin, nor is he saying it is not possible for the Christian to live uh, in a way that is fleshly, sinful, carnal. I indeed, it seems he imagined we, wi we will, or else why the exhortation? Yes, Paul, in all of his exhortations, is acknowledging the temptations that we face, our liability to fall. Our feelings of being wretched and sinful and rotten. Sin which dwells in the body. He acknowledges that. Only he's saying, well, he's reasoning with us. He's saying, don't you see? Every time you sin, it's not logical. The thing, well, it doesn't make sense given who you are and what God has done for you. It makes no sense at all every time you sin. Have you at least seen that much? I realize You'll go on sinning. You'll go on sinning to the day you die. But have you at least recognized the contradiction involved in sin every time you sin? Do you realize that every time you sin, it represents a tragic failure on your part to exercise faith? To realize what is true of you as a Christian and what God has done for you. It is a tragic failure 
to appreciate what it means to be a Christian, one who is indwelt by the Spirit. Do you understand why Paul says that when you are sinning, you are grieving the Holy Spirit? Why? Because he's taken up his residence in you. And why has he done that? In order to conform you to Christ, to make you new and better all the time. He's renewing you day by day. And yet there are times and seasons when we turn our back on that, when we say yes to the flesh and no to the spirit. And do you realize that that is nothing but grieving the spirit? Well, that's the first point. We're debtors not to the flesh, but to the spirit. You need to see that about yourself. If you are to have any appreciation for what he says next. As a second point, the positive duty stated in verse 13 And for the remainder of the sermon, we'll be taken up with this point. The positive duty in terms of two contrasting principles of life. In fact, again, he never states the duty. He only implies it. In verse 12, he implies it. In verse 13, he implies it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You see, he doesn't say put to death the deeds of the body. That's implied. That's what he's telling us to do. But he states it in terms of these two principles. Just as he did in verse 12. Well, the first principle is this. The flesh is the realm of death. And we know that. We've seen that ever since chapter 5, if not chapter 1. And certainly throughout chapter 8, he's been making that clear to us. The man who lives according to the flesh is the man who's dead already. And he's going to die. The wages of sin is death. Chapter 6, verse 23. I don't think at this point we should be in any, any trouble about that. Indeed, he's just said of the believer, the body is dead because of sin. And so even the body operates, you might say, in the realm of death. It's fleshly, it's sinful. And so it will die. But the spirit, he tells us, that's the contrasting principle. The spirit is the realm of life. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And and this too is something which is obvious, or at least it should be by now. Yes, of course, the inner man is the place of life. The spirit is alive because of righteousness. But it isn't just uh, stating these two things as two principles, but again, stating one in terms of the other, dealing with the negative in terms of the positive. Yes, the flesh is the realm of death, but the spirit is the realm of life. And there is a contradiction which inheres in the life of the believer, for he is both. He is both spirit and flesh. He is both alive and dead. Again, I say with Paul, the spirit is alive because of righteousness, but the body is death. That is what's true of you. Now, that's not not what's true of an unbeliever. An unbeliever is dead through and through. But a believer is alive, though he dies. Now, we need to say something about the word if here, because we might stumble over the word if. In fact, I find that I'm always tempted to stumble over the word if in Scripture. Uh, Paul is not stating a condition of our salvation. I don't want to be too much at pains here. I notice some are at pains to, uh, to explain this point. Although not Owen, interestingly. Just one paragraph. And so I want to emulate Owen here. He's talking to Christians. He's already established that. You're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. Although, don't we, don't we find that word if again? If. Indeed, the spirit of God dwells in you. And if Christ is in you, verse 10. Well, let's assume that we are Christians and that I'm speaking to Christians. When Paul says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. He is reminding Christians and I am reminding Christians of the sequence or the order of salvation. This is the way some put it. It's not cause and effect. 
The way that you will live is by mortifying the deeds of the flesh. In other words, the way that you will be saved and enjoy eternal life is by sanctification. That would be to deny everything he said thus far. Eternal life is the gift of God by grace. We recognize that. But rather, Paul is speaking to those who already know this, who've already experienced it. Those who've been justified by faith and know salvation is the gift of God. And what does he say to them? Well, it is not cause and effect, but means and end. It is a means to an end. Mortification of sin is not the cause of our salvation, but it is the means by which God brings about the end of eternal life. And indeed, on the other side, those who live according to the flesh will surely die, as we've already seen in verses 7 and 8. So there's nothing new here. He's speaking to Christian people who are on their way to heaven. And he's telling them by what means God plans to bring them there. And so it all comes to this. And, uh, and here I am heavily indebted to Owen. In fact, if you've read Owen uh, carefully and you were to say, as it was once said of Whitfield, he's giving us Henry, he's giving, uh, giving us Matthew Henry. If you were to say he's giving us Owen, well, uh, I would be all right with that. I, I know the spirit of the day is everything has to be original. I'm not seeking to be original here. I'm giving you Owen. I'm stating that at the outset. And I hope I'm stimulating a desire in you uh, to read Owen, though I am giving you Owen in his own words. Here is the doctrine. The doctrine is this. If by the spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you'll live. That's the, the teaching of these verses. But the duty is, and this is our focus, the mortification of sin. The duty of the believer is to mortify the deeds of the body. Now, again, the question which confronts us is this. What's our disposition to sin to be? That's the question we're seeking to answer here. And it is our duty which answers the question. And I want to look at this under six headings. The first of which is this. Sin remains in the bodies of believers. And it is there that we must deal with it. Not in the inner man. Not as a ruling principle. Sin is not your master, Paul says. Sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under law but under grace. Chapter 6, verse 14. Sin is not your master. It is not capable of enslaving you. And yet it is still there troubling us in our bodies. And it will do so until uh, the, this mortal body of ours lies in the grave and we are delivered from it, as Paul says. And until we are given new bodies in the resurrection. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls sin in the body a residual problem. Now, it is possible either to make too much or too little of this. There are some people who make too much of sin. They treat sin as, as, as something which uh, is impossible to overcome. Yes, it's a menace, but they make it into a terrible tyrant which rules and, and causes them to suffer all of their days. As something against which they never uh, believe or imagine they will experience any trace of victory in their lives. They're making too much of sin. But it is also possible to make too little of sin. To look at sin in the body and to treat it as though it's no trouble at all. As though the Christian is able all of his days to live free from uh, the dangers and the power of sin. Uh, there is a doctrine of entire sanctification. The Arminians are especially prone to this, but at times even the Reformed. But we are to hold the proper view. We'll never quite get past this problem of sin in our lives. But we do believe it's possible to make progress. And there is no reason to let sin ever dominate your life. Ever.
It's not the, slave, the master. You're not its slave. It's never to be seen as a dominating, enslaving influence. But nevertheless, it is that which dwells in the flesh of the believer. We speak of this as indwelling sin. There is another work of Owen, which you can find in this collection of his works. He speaks of it like this in chapter 7, verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present in me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. And so on. And he's speaking there of indwelling sin. Sin which dwells in me, he says in verse 17. It is defined here a little differently. He calls it the deeds of the body. If by the spirit you mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, he is not conceiving the body here as evil in, it, in, in and of itself, but rather as the body, as he just said, as that which is dead because of sin, the body which is the seed of sin and is dead because of sin. In other words, if we ask the question, where does sin dwell? Where does it trouble us? Well, not in the inner man, but in the outer man. Remember how he puts it in chapter six. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves, that is the inner man, to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. There again, you see the contrast alive in the inner man and yet still dealing with it in the outer man. Well, that's the first point. Number two. Our duty or disposition with respect to the deeds of the body is defined in terms of mortification. We are to mortify them, that is, the deeds of the body. But what does this mean? What does it mean to put to death or to mortify these sinful tendencies and inclinations which reside in the body? Well, it means something like this. It means to take away the strength or the life of a thing. It means to aim at something's death. It means to root it out, to render it ineffective. And this is, uh, we ought to see, the constant duty of believers, their unwavering disposition with respect to their own sin. It's not, a, in other words, a here or there thing. That's not what Paul is saying. He isn't saying, well, when you fall into a particular sin, now and again, here's what I want you to do. That is not what he's saying at all. He's saying this is to be... Given the reality of sin in the body, your unwavering and constant disposition, your, your unending commitment with respect to your own sin, again, not a here or there thing, but an always thing, uh, an attitude, a disposition that you take up, a mentality. I am someone who is going to wage a constant warfare against my own sin. That's what he's describing here for sin is a restless evil. That's what we discover not only from scripture, but by sad experience. And it never rests. And it always aims at, the, at its highest end, namely death. Sin will never rest until it kills you, beloved. Have you learned that yet? And so Owen says, when sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. Is that your commitment? Have you learned by sad experience that sin will never let you alone? That it will always trouble you. It will always seek to bring you down. It will always seek to rob you of spiritual life, even now as you seek to worship God. The truth is sin never rests. 
and when it's most quiet, so we find it's most dangerous. And so be killing sin lest it be killing you. That's the thought. Number three, there are false views of mortification. How to deal with the problem of sin. You see, it's not enough to just treat sin as a terrible foe and then say, well, we've got to kill it. We need to realize as well that there are many false views and false teachings. Uh, The most prominent uh, that we must combat is the Roman Catholic or the ascetic view. The thought uh, that sin is mortified by mere negation. I, 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 I mortify sin by avoiding sin. And if I can avoid sin, then I won't commit sin. If I just go hide in the monastery or live on top of a pole, which someone actually did in the early church. If I can just get as far away from sin as possible. Is it possible that uh, we are guilty of that as well in certain ways in the Reformed Church? That we treat sin, uh, we treat mortification of sin merely as negation, as avoiding sin only, rather than seeing sin in ourselves, seeing sin in our children as a deep-rooted problem. Beloved, we are born, we are conceived in sin. You don't have to teach a child to sin. A sin will sin as soon as it's born in the womb. It will sin, I I mean, as soon as it's born into the world. It will begin to sin even before then. It's a deep-rooted problem. Do you realize that? Of course, I'm going to say this later. There are occasions to sin. There are incitements and enticements to sin. But that's not sin. That's temptation. And I would never tell you not to protect your children from those things or yourselves. I will tell you that very soon. But sin is something which dwells within. It is something which dwells in the flesh. And if we simply treat it as something to be avoided, then we will never root it out. We will never see sin as something that is in ourselves, in our own flesh. Well, suppose we take the positive approach. There's still a, a danger which confronts us. Owen speaks of, this is the second false view. We could call this simply legalism. It is mortification, Owen calls it, from a self-strength. It places self in opposition to sin. If sin is to be dealt with, I will deal with it. This is nothing but the principle of works brought to bear upon our sanctification, which is as disastrous to our sanctification as it is to our justification. It is that which seeks to deal with the problem of sin, the deep-rooted problem of sin in our fleshly natures, in terms of human strength, rather than in terms of divine strength. Well then, what is the true view? As a fourth point, the true view is seen in the words by the Spirit. For here Paul presents mortification as an aspect of our sanctification, like our justification as the gift of God. It's a grace. The true power of mortification, let us see. And the hidden strength which lies within the believer which enables him to conquer sin in his life, is the Spirit of God, by the Spirit. And so often we deal with the problem of sin apart from that phrase. And what length Satan goes to get us to forget that little phrase. If by the Spirit we mortify the deeds of the flesh, we shall live. And so the real starting point is the Spirit. It's not myself. It's the Spirit. The Spirit is in you. Go back to verses 9 through 11. His residence is in you, even in your sinful bodies. You see, he's there already. Paul isn't saying, you've got to find him. You've got to seek him out, and then you can mortify the flesh. No, he's saying, 
He's already there. He's in you. If you're in Christ, Christ is in you. He's already there even as you take up the fight. Again, let me stress, you don't have to find him if you're a Christian. You simply have to acknowledge him. He's aiding you. He's enabling you. He's there. And did you ever realize that he is just as powerful a force in your life as sin? Indeed, I would go further. He is far greater a force and a power in your life than sin. And I would go even further than that and say that he is the only power in anyone's life great enough to counter the power of sin. And apart from which we would be hopefully and endlessly enslaved. How does he do so? Well, this I thought, there were many helpful portions of Owen, but I have to say this was the most helpful. It was just one page in the work, and I have to quote him here. How is it that the Spirit enables us to take up the fight in a victorious manner? You see, what I'm really saying to you is that you, if you are a Christian, are already equipped to do so. You are not looking for something further, but you are rather called to do something that you are already equipped to do. But how is it that the Spirit enables us to do this? Well, he says two things. First, he says, by causing our hearts to abound in the grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh. End quote. That is, by creating in us a disposition and a nature which is contrary to the flesh. If you think of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. The nature of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Is a nature which he is impressing upon your souls. He is the author of every grace. He is the one who is stirring up in you everything that is good and right and godly. And even as he does this, as he renews us day by day, what he's doing is he is creating in us the very disposition which is counter to sin, which is contrary to sin. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that Owen says, by really consuming and destroying our lust, he's the fire which burns up the very root of lust. Now here we look at Galatians chapter 5. Paul says that the flesh rises up against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. We, we ought to see these things as contrary to one another. The flesh is contrary to the spirit. But do you realize that the spirit is also contrary to the flesh? And merely by his presence, his abiding presence in you, the flesh is being opposed the fires of the lusts of the flesh are being put out and consumed by the water and the, and the grace of the Holy Spirit. He consumes, he destroys our lusts. He's the fire which burns up the very root of lust. Do you realize what an immeasurable advantage it is to have the Holy Spirit, to be indwelt by him? And yet, this is stated here as our duty. Let us see that. The Spirit is creating a disposition whereby we might take up this battle victoriously day by day. And yet the duty is ours. In other words, he doesn't do it for us, but rather the way it's presented here is that he enables us to do so ourselves. That's how sanctification is always put in scripture. And that is uh, the way by which sanctification is seen to differ from justification for justification is a grace solely and fully but sanctification is a grace yes but it's also a duty it's something we're called to do if by the spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh you'll live or it's god who's at work in you both to will and to do so what does paul say philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 so work out your salvation he's saying god's at work in you 
He's creating this gracious disposition. He's quenching the fires of your lust by his spirit. And so what are you to do? You're to work out what he's working in you. He's there enabling you. He, he is a power which is in you, greater than the power of sin. And what are we to do? Well, to, we are to realize the strength is there to oppose and mortify every sin. Every time sin rises up, the spirit is already there, whereby we might rise up in opposition to it. Do not look for some further experience. So much of the teaching of sanctification is taught in this life. Look for something further, something higher. Perhaps you'll get there. That isn't the teaching. The teaching is get to work at once. Get to work at once. Let me offer, as a fifth point, some helps in the work of mortification. The first thing, and the essential thing, is that we treat sin for what it is. Never smile at sin, never wink at sin, never adore the thought of sin. Treat it for what it is, or else you will never successfully oppose it. Sin is evil. Sin is transgression. It is the very opposite and negation of the life of God. Sin is death. Number two, aim for the habit of sin. I'm going to offer you a list of helps. Aim for the habit of sin. In other words, don't just wait for sin in full bloom, but deal with sin uh, as a settled disposition in your flesh, an inclination, a restless inclination in your flesh. Put a check on that, the habit of sin. Number three, always be fighting and contending against sin. You may give sin rest when it does you. Number four, go from victory unto victory. Do not stop short of a full conquest. Always be fighting. When sin lies low, do not say the work is done, but go on from victory unto victory. Number five, know thyself. Know what sins you are especially prone to. Know when and where you're prone to sin. Do I need to tell you to avoid these things? The kinds of sins which you are apt to commit, you ought to know them by then, by now I mean. And you ought to deal with yourself as a sinner and a specific kind of sinner. The confession talks of our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith in its chapter on repentance says that a general repentance will never do. But repentance as involving the work of mortification must be a repentance of particular sins particularly. What sins are you prone to? Don't you know by now? Those are the sins you've got to aim at in the work of mortification. Name them by name in the presence of God. Confess them as sin. Hate them and set yourself against them. Put a check on yourself. Don't become careless. Don't become lazy. Don't become too indulged. Don't become weak. Stand against yourself as a sinner. Know thy enemy, number six. Understand full well the danger, the power of sin. The apostle says, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. That's, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. Be aware of its strategies. Be aware of its subtleties. Sin is deceit. Avoid such occasions that give sin the advantage in the upper hand. These as well, you ought to know by now. What are the kinds of things that make me more prone to sin? Now, that's where you ought to avoid. You ought to avoid temptation. I'm not saying these things are making you sin. Sin is already there. But these are exciting and arousing the sin that's already there. Well, avoid them. Stay away. Set a hedge around the borders of sin and don't even venture to those borders. Keep a safe distance. And certainly, I would say this, rise up against its first motions. 
Just as soon as you feel that you're tempted or inclined to sin, that's when you've got to stand against it, as James says. Or else, well, you know, you know the rest of the story. Just as soon as it, it goes beyond temptation to feeling, to, uh, to uh, conceiving of the sin in the heart, well, you're all but finished at that point. And sin's not so easily rooted out anymore, is it? Once it's gotten a hold of your heart. No, rise against its first motions. Know thy enemy. And then lastly, be taken up much with spiritual thoughts, as we've seen in chapter 8, verses uh, 5 through 8. The spiritual mind, those who are spiritually minded, think on the things of God. They set their mind on these things. Another way to put this is to exercise faith. And especially when I say exercise faith, I mean this. Be taken up with thoughts of God. Don't be taken up so much with thoughts of the devil and the world and the evils of sin. Yes, just give that some thought. But give the greater part of your thoughts and the greater part of your faith to this, the greatness of God, the grace of God, the gift of God, the love of God, the power of God. Set your mind on these things. And and even above all of that, be taken up, beloved, with the cross of Christ. And remember that it is there on the cross that the, the power and the life and the guilt of sin was taken out. Once and for all, Jesus Christ takes away the power of sin at the cross. Have you realized that for yourself? Have you dealt with his cross in a personal way? Remember why he died. Remember what it was that he dealt with there on the cross. It was sin. Even your sin. The very sin that you're attempted to commit. The sin which condemns you. From which he freed you. Draw near to him. That's what I'm saying. Be frequent in your dealings with his cross. Seek his help. See him as your great high priest. Draw strength and grace from him. Draw strength and grace from his appointed means. Look for help in the preaching. Look for help in the sacraments. Look for help in prayer. And so on and so forth. Never take up the work of mortification apart from Christ in you. Number six, the promise you will live. Need I say any more on that? You will live. You will live now and forever. The life that you live will be a life lived to the fullest, not a life which is dragged down constantly by the misery of sin. You will live. Isn't that what you want? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Could he put it more completely or better than that? But I return to the question as I close. What is our disposition to sin to be? And here is the answer. The answer is one of total opposition. And so the sum of our duty is this. Watch and pray. Watch and pray against seasons and occasions of temptation. Watch and pray against the risings of sin, the daily risings of sin in your own heart. Watch and pray even when sin is seemingly at peace giving you rest. For it is not. It's only gathering strength for its next assault. Again, have you not learned that by now? But the trouble is always, and I can say this from my own experience, whenever there's any measure of backsliding, the trouble is that it's always marked by a period of carelessness. I wasn't watching and praying. J.C. Ryle says, you never see a great fall into sin that wasn't preceded by a period of carelessness. That's the trouble. We let our guard down. We stop fighting and our enemy gathers strength and enters in with new power against us. Oh, Paul says, stand against sin. Always be on guard. Be careful. Be active in your opposition. Walk by the spirit. Galatians chapter five, the spirit who dwells in you and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
Be active against the habit of sin. Be active against the risings of sin. Sin is all its, in all its forms and manifestations. Yes, indeed. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen. And let us come to the table. that's a difficult sermon to preach. I imagine it's a difficult sermon to hear because, well, as you do so, you are immediately confronted and convicted with your own failings, your own failings. Well, your own sin, first and foremost, but also your own failings to deal with it. But always remember that to be convicted of sin and to be brought low is something beneficial. Bunyan talks about the value, valley of humiliation in Pilgrim's Progress, and he says there there is uh, much fruit that grows in that valley. So there's value in being brought low. I was brought low all week. I'm, I'm low right now. Uh, but there's value in that. It's a good place to be. And we look to the Lord for his grace. We look for it now in the, in the supper. And I would remind you of what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This too, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord there. Uh, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I would remind you here of what is promised. What is promised is Christ himself. We're not just remembering him, but we're communing with him. We're setting our faith on him. And every time we do that, we're communing with him in spirit. We're not only doing that, but we're setting our faith uh, on what is to come. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So you're looking back, you're looking forward, you're proclaiming, you're enjoying his presence. But Paul says you you need to examine yourself. And I would always remind you that what he's he's asking you to examine is not uh, so much your life, but your faith. And, And that is to say your faith in the present moment. You're not asking, am I worthy to come, but am I coming in a worthy manner? And there's all the difference in the world. Remember what our book says so helpfully. This warning is not aimed to keep the humble and contrite from the table of the Lord as as if it were for those who were free from sin. In fact, it's for sinners that the Lord gives this supper as a means of grace. Through the elements of bread and wine, our Lord graciously gives himself and all his benefits to everyone who eats and drinks in in a worthy manner discerning the body of the Lord. It's one thing to eat and drink in a worthy manner. It's very different, however, to imagine that we are worthy to eat and drink. We dare not come to the Lord's table as if we were worthy and righteous in ourselves. We come in a worthy manner if we recognize that we are unworthy sinners who need our Savior. If we consciously discern his body given for our sins. If we hunger and thirst after Christ, giving thanks for his grace, trusting in his merits, feeding on him by faith, renewing our covenant with him and his people. In other words, if we exercise faith after the inner man, 
If we acknowledge that we are sinners in the outer man, but but inwardly Christ has renewed us, he's redeemed us, he's brought us into fellowship with himself, and that's what we want. We want greater strength, greater grace by which we might uh, not only grow in the inner man, but by which we might wage the warfare against uh, the sins of the outer man. It's in that sense that this is a means of grace, and we are called uh, to exercise such a faith. If you exercise such a faith, well then, that's coming in a worthy manner. That's saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you as just as you came to this world in the, in the lowliness of the flesh. So you come to us now in the lowliness of preaching. And you come to us in the lowliness of a piece of bread and a cup of wine. And you come to us in the lowliness of a book. And yet there we find him and there we're strengthened by him in the constant battle that we wage against sin. And with those words, uh, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. That Christ our Lord is our sacrifice. He is the gift of life and forgiveness. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We we acknowledge our need of you and and our need by faith to discern you as one who is present in the elements. And to, to discern what they represent as we remember your body, which was broken, and your blood, which was shed. These things are the means of our salvation. And we would never seek to be reconciled to God in any other way. Well, Father, we ask you that we might be brought back to these very things, that we would remember Christ, that we would commune with him as your son and as our savior, and that we would be strengthened in the inner man as we seek to stand against grace. May this uh, stand against sin, I mean, and may this be to us indeed a means of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.